You are listening to Mike Seminary and Friends, a Q1 Network production. Gosh, I, th- I think most of you know that I live in North Dakota, have spent most of my life in North Dakota, proudly, by the way. It's a wonderful place to be from and to live. It has remarkable people, resources. Yeah, every once in a while, the weather's a bit of a challenge, but the weather's a bit of a challenge just about anywhere anymore. North Dakota is also a place that's abundant of incredibly important and valuable resources. Agriculture, geez, we're, we produce some of the most important crops that are shipped all, all around the world. Natural resources like coal, and that's, you know, sometimes controversial today, but a, a lot of coal, one of the most significant resources of lignite coal in the world, and very abundant in uh, oil and natural gas. And God put that here for a number of reasons, and we're going to kind of talk about that, because the future of energy, the future of North Dakota is very, very important. North Dakota produces, on the average, about 900,000 barrels of oil a day, crude oil, has uh, at one point in time reached 1.5 million. And as we are here today, that's important for a variety of reasons. And of course, there's great discussion about how do we transition from fossil fuels uh, and, and why we do that, why it's important. And why it's still important to use uh, appropriately the resources that we still have. And I am so lucky to have with me today a person that has such a unique background. He's a leader in global energy, in the energy business for over 25 years. He has experience in North and South America, Africa, the Middle and Far East. He is a talented individual and petrochemical, mining, oil and gas transportation industries. And I've had the pleasure to meet him to date virtually, mainly because of a project that was announced not too long ago in North Dakota and the importance of it. It's roughly a $2.8 billion gas to liquids project in Trenton, North Dakota. And so, so I am so pleased and privileged and so honored to have with me today the CEO and president of Sirleon, which is out of Calgary, Canada, the CEO and president, Nico Drisma. Nico, it's great to see you. How are you today? Mike, it's good. Thank you for the very nice introduction. I really appreciate that. And I consider it a, an honor and a privilege to actually be part of this. Well, thank you. So, so I've been asked the, the first question that occurs to me with, and we'll get into the details of gas to liquids and why that's so important, but this experience that you have, is, which is global, Calgary, which is almost like the Dallas or Houston of Texas, Calgary, Canada, North Dakota is number two in terms of reserves, number three in terms of production, that's behind Texas. Why did North Dakota get your attention for this incredibly important project that we're going to talk about, Nico? 
Mike, it's a good question, and I often get the question because it's not just about you know doing a project. You know, there must be strategic alignment on many levels before you actually decide to do a project. You know, in a in a location, and it, it's covering you know some of the main areas, and I think the you know some of the key things that are important to me is first of all the strategic leadership of the people leaving leading the state, as well as the value system that they, you know, support and portray. Because in the end, you know, you've got optionality of where and what you want to do, but you want to do it with people that has got the same values and has actually got the vision and the strategies to move in the right direction. And I found both in North Dakota in in various, you know, components, just from a a leadership, you know, and, and envisioning approach. But the other side is also with a leadership that North Dakota has positioned themselves very well. And some of it is, you know, not something that you can fabricate. You know, the fact of all the resources, all the gas that is available, the fact that you've got a carbon sequestration opportunity, you know, with the aquifers that are sitting be, below North Dakota. And then the combination of legislation that is in place for poor space ownership, your approach to carbon capture and sequestration, uh, the different incentive programs made it a you know unique and in priority location for us. So that's mm-hmm. you know some of the, the the reasons. So it's a long answer, but that's what we um, you know considered. No, thank you, Nicola. Let me peel that back just a little bit. When you mentioned leadership and values, when our governor, Doug Burgum, put put a stake in the ground and said, our goal is carbon neutrality, want to be carbon neutral by 2030. And in the big picture of what that means, how important was that for you, your team, and where you want to want where you want to go, and how North Dakota could be a part of that? Mike, the the strategic vision to move towards carbon neutrality is important, but that's not enough. You need more than just a decision and a you know a vision statement by Doug Bergen, you know the governor. You also need, you know, the people below that, that is aligned. You also need all the the different components. I mean, I can look at, you know, your political environment, your regulatory environment, your environmental, you know, space, technology to support that, your, your legal environment. So all of the components of a, you know, traditional pestle analysis, as well as, you know, the direction implemented, because it's nice to have the you know the strategies and the vision, but if you don't do anything with it and actually deliver on what you're saying and have a, a, a number of factors in place to do that, it's it's not going to come to anything. A friend of mine said that you know what you need the opportunities, you need the blueprints, you also then need to the strategies you know to actually implement what you, you you're looking at, and then you need to be surprised. And wait for all the surprises to happen, and that's that's really what it boils down to. You know, make sure that we've got intentionality in what we do, that we then have the the, the courage for the leadership to move that forward, and then implement that. 
Thank you, Nico. Before I get to some specific questions about gas to liquid and North Dakota, how long had had you and your team been looking at North Dakota, researching it uh, before the trigger was really pulled to say this is the place? That was actually not such a long time. We have evaluated different sites and different options, you know, from different uh, states in the U.S. Um, as well as Canada. And that process has been ongoing for, you know, a while. I think while that was uh, going on in the review, we also realized but that the global environment has rapidly changed in, uh, you know, where we're sitting today. So now you sit with a lot of, you know, bigger picture dynamics that are influenced the way people look at energy, the way they look at investment, the way they look at, you know, development of, of, of energy as a future. And that played a, a big role. So as we've started on the journey, we've realized that, you know, the, the, the whole approach with carbon capture and sequestration became such a fundamental piece that if you don't have an answer for that, your locations will not work. So our original site was disqualified because of that reason. We looked at some of the other states. We also looked at a, you know, an Alberta for a, for a location. And then when we started putting everything on the table, you know, the, the push from the, you know, the, the, the uh, North Dakota Commerce Department came in over a few months. Say, this is what we can offer. Why? Can you not decide to go with us and help us understand what it will take to do that? Hmm. So there was a real intentionality from the state of North Dakota to say, and I would say in a matter of about three months, the decision was made to actually go with North Dakota as our first project. Hmm. Uh, thank you. In a moment, would Explain exactly what gas to liquids is. And the reason I ask that way, as I have been visiting with people, because I'm involved in economic development activities, as you're well aware, I've come to learn that it's fairly foreign to most people. I ask the question of, what do you know about it? And in large part because of most of the gas to liquid plants operations, they're, they're not in North America. They're in Malaysia or South Africa, uh, Qatar, Uzbekistan, and, and some other places. So this will be fairly new, clearly to North Dakota and most of North America. So what exactly is gas to liquids? I think if you want to understand it, you want to look at, you know, what is upstream? That is the production. What is midstream? That is then the transport of your, your gas or your oil. And then what is downstream, and that is where the, the gas to liquids will come in. What you do with the gas is really a three-step process to take the gas and reform that into a syngas. You create hydrogen, but um, water. And then in the step two, you through the Fischer-Tropsch process, you create a Fischer-Tropsch wax and liquids, 
And then the third step is where you then create your gas to liquids products, your Fisher Drops products. And that could be a variety. You could make ultra low sulfur diesel. You can also make jet fuel. You can also make NAFTA, LPG, and then you can also make, you know, base oils. That is the, the main feedstock for synthetic lubricants. Now, that is the three-step process, and, and that is what a gas-to-liquids facility is doing and what it is. Where the confusion sometimes is, is where people think about gas-liquids or liquids that is coming from your gas supply. That is not the same, although some similar characteristics, but it's not the same. Nothing that's may, maybe where sometimes you know, the, the, the confusion is. It's very similar on the other side than a bio-to-liquids facility. With a bio-to-liquids, you've got a fourth step. You first of all take your uh, bio-feedstock, whether it's wood chips or um, you know, canola products. You gasify it, and then out of that, you get a, you know, a synthesis gas. And then you go through the same process. You synthesize the gas, reform it, fish it drops, and then product workup. So very similar, but that's a high-level background of, of of what the process is. Uh, th- those products you just mentioned are they're all in you know significant demand. Um, that being said, well, why isn't there at present a gas to liquid facility? That at least I'm not aware of one. Why isn't there one in North America, or at least in the oil patch in the states? That is a is a good question that that we've been asked. And to answer that is it's, it's a combination of factors. Number one, you need a very experienced team to be able to do this successfully. This is not something that you do overnight and buy it off the shelf. You need to understand the complexities. You need to develop that. Although a you know group of people understand that well and that can be done, you also need technology. You also need you know the demand for the products. And where we are sitting today is a unique situation where the oil drilling is not continue at the same pace that it's did in the past you then see a global drive for the change towards you know cleaner and environmental friendly products in energy and you also see technology developments in the ft space that has brought the capital down now if you look at all of that combinations and you add to that you know the the, the bigger environmental drive for cleaner and greener products then you sit with a unique combination that has set the stage for a gas to liquids immensely. So now you sit with, you know, the ability to take, you know, the technology improvements, the drive for, for, for cleaner fuel and combine that and you can bring a solution. You know, just to, to give you the bigger picture, uh, you know, combination and, and factors that uh, you consider. Uh, EIA indicated that by 2050, you're going to sit with a demand for roughly about 50 million barrels a day in uh, in the US of, 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 of fuel. Only with the adaption for 
the electrical vehicles, bio-to-liquids, all the renewables, that can provide in the order of about 4 million barrels a day. So now you sit with a shortfall of 60 million and more of energy that you need to provide. And that can not be done, you know, by the, you know, the bio-to-liquids and the renewables. It cannot be provided by, you know, the hydrogen or ammonia or any of the other sources. So you need something else to fill the gap. And the quicker that you can produce GTL facilities, the more adaptive it would be. Part of the, the solution for us is that we now bring the carbon capture and sequestration as part of the makeup and to then provide the lowest carbon footprint GTL facility in the world. What it then is doing in on top of that is with all of the demand for the different products, as well as the drive towards cleaner and greener energy, that we're uniquely situated to do that. And with then capital improvements and other technology improvements that you can offer the solution. We also went through a stage of, you know, many of the energy was, we were comfortable with it. Now that the whole world is shaken about what is happening with the energy industry, we need to bring different solutions. And that is why people are now looking with different eyes and looking at different approaches to provide the energy. And I think that's why GTL has now become very prominent because of the solutions that it can offer. So that's the the, the landscape changes that is really enforcing and, and supporting the development of GTL in the world today. Nico, I want to go back to something that you referenced and kind of a two-part question. The lowest carbon footprint facility of its kind uh, in the world, that's what this will be, the one in Trenton, North Dakota. Compared to those that are in the the other countries I mentioned, Malaysia, Qatar, so on and so forth, Nigeria, South, South Africa, this will be the lowest carbon footprint facility. Those current facilities, most of that product that is produced, are those customers primarily in Asia and other parts of the country versus North America? And then the second part of the question is, once this facility is established and it has the lowest carbon footprint, how does that influence the existing plants and the engineering or design of the new ones to come thereafter? Yeah, I'm, I'm sensing there's three questions there, Mike, and not just uh, two. So <laughs> let me you know, answer the, you know, the, the one question first. Yes, the lower carbon footprint facility in the world. And the, and the reason for that is that we're also including significant carbon capture and sequestration as part of the solution. And that will be part of the design from day one. And that would make a difference. It is also speaks to the, to the product slide. Not all of the products are produced by, you know, all of the GTL facilities. Not all of them are including the, the base wells that is the, the, the synthetic lubricants. Although the Shell facility in Qatar has is, is, is got that as, as one of the biggest 
producers. But to then look at where the products will be consumed and how that will be influenced, you need to take it, you know, product by product. The beauty of putting this into North Dakota is that it supports the U.S. in energy security. Number one, you've got a source of ultra-low sulfur diesel that's going to support local demand in North Dakota. Number two, uh, that you are sitting with a NAFTA that will be utilized in, in, in various applications in North America. And then thirdly, the base oils currently for the Group 3 Plus in North America are all imported. So now what you're actually creating is a production facility closer to home that will be able to supply a portion of the demand in North America. So that is significant from the perspective of energy security and product security because your supply chains of delivery is now local and home and not from abroad. As we've seen in the last three years, the supply chains are severely under pressure. And to do, to have energy security is becoming of a significant importance. Your announcement, if I recall correctly, said that it was a 24,000 barrel per day production facility. And that construction hopefully would begin in some time in 2023. How long once the construction starts, will it take to complete it? And then based on that timeline, would 24,000 barrels a day, given the demand for the supply, be small? Would you need to ramp up for an expansion? Good question. Mike, definitely. We already are designing and looking at a phase two already so that we can do a phase one and a phase two, so that that will be able to supply some of the demand. But if we look at ultra-low sulfur diesel and the demand for cleaner and greener you know, energy, that we can build almost two facilities every year for the next 20 years, and we would not be able to supply all the demand. So it is of significant gap that 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 we'd be addressing and that's specifically the the ultra low sulfur diesel but there is significant demand to do this and we're planning in our operations to do already phase one and phase two and to create a template that we're building so that we can replicate this fairly quickly to other facilities to mm-hmm. to give you another you know, uh, 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 approach or a view on this. Uh, I like your statistics in the beginning. Is that if we do the carbon capture the the way we anticipate, that will take the emissions of three hundred thousand cars off the road. So that is significant in the way that we approach this. Hmm. This is new for fairly new for North Dakota and the way we traditionally look at natural resources, exploration, production, transportation. That said, as you made the announcement and you've been uh, visiting with local folks in the Trenton area, 
policymakers throughout the state. What are some of the initial concerns that some folks have shared with you? And additionally, what are some of the exciting responses that you're hearing from individuals that think this is a wonderful project and the timing is perfect? Mike, and that's, that's an answer to a, to a question that I'm, I'm going to tell you a little story. We presented to one of the boards of what we need to do here and how we need to move it forward. And the beauty of the presentation and the responses afterwards, you always get the people on the left side, on the right side, some people supporting it, some people say, you know what, I don't want it into my backyard, but I need it. So on a strategic level, everyone knows that we needed the North Dakota because we need to take the gas away. That's one. Number two, we also want to make sure that we create a petrochemical and a downstream industry to create a more robust um, energy industry that is can go with the boom and bust cycles and still be viable as, as it is developing. Number three, the, the way the people responded with some of the concerns of not in my backyard and the other side of the spectrum is that the, the group in the board that said to us, they so believe in what we're doing. They said, we don't need one or two. We need six of these facilities in North Dakota. And that just messaged to me the importance of what we do how we do it, and really to step into that space and say, you know what, we need to make this happen, not just for the sake of, you know, just the economy, but also for the sake of the people, keeping the jobs of the industry as it is, and also creating the new jobs of what you create with machine learning and AI and all the, the newer technologies in applying and creating jobs for the kids that they can come in and understand, you know, this is different and this is world-class. So that's the, the, the energy levels that we've seen. The, this last week as I was in North Dakota, the responses blew me away. The excitement levels, if you start talking, people are smiling. They want to be part of this and they start giving you solutions of what you should be doing and helping this. Now that shows me ownership in a level that you normally don't see. And I love it because that's what we want to see. Ownership that this is not just our project. It is everyone's project. So that's what I found in, in the differences and some of the communication that we've received so far at all levels, whether it's a board member, whether it's a county, whether it's, you know, from the legislative, or even just the person on the street tells me, listen, I've heard your radio interview. I really like that. I want to support that. Have you got a job for me? Mm, thank, thanks for saying it that way, Nico. As a, as a recovering politician, a person that was a city commissioner and a mayor and sat on city and county planning and zoning boards, and hundreds and hundreds of meetings during my 10-year career. 
I, I've heard plenty of folks express their concerns about change and how it impacts them. It was rare that I heard someone that was proposing whatever the project was use the term ownership. Because in some ways that was really hard because of what the development was. In this case, here it's a form of enterprise that's part of our future. It's also connecting us to our past, where we've lived through changes in technology. If, if you've ever been anywhere near oil country, you've seen what how they used to extract oil 50 years ago, how that's changed over the past 10 or 15 years with horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing, and how they've, they've cleaned that up, so to speak, made it more efficient. And now this is the this is the new opportunity. This is the new future for for all of us. And yes, there will be people that will resist that. That's human nature. I understand, but I've never heard someone use ownership. And so thank you. So because when somebody comes in to where we live, work, and play, and do our own enterprise, when we start knowing that we're owning this together, that that's critically important. Which leads me to this question. The, the first phase, when construction begins in 2023, what are the local um, employment opportunities for people in that footprint in the beginning and then longer term in terms of uh, operations, involvement, and then even possibly the next phase? What, what does that look like for folks? Mike, I'm going to answer that, but I don't want to let go of, you know, your comment about ownership. Because there's, for me, three words. Ownership, leadership, and stewardship. Ownership of the opportunities, but also the challenges that we're facing. And then to be intentional about that, strategic, and to be able to deliver. So the next word is really the, the leadership. We need to have the courage for leadership to realize that there is a change happening and that I need to step into a different world, a different perspective, a different way, and that I need to be able to stand up and say, this is what I'm standing for, but that courage for leadership. And then the last one is the stewardship, and that will start to, to look at the, 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 the jobs as well. How do we steward our resources, our time, Whatever we have in challenges and opportunities as a, as a stewardship opportunity as well, how do we do that well? Not just for us, but also for the generations to come, for the environment, for everything that is impacted here. You know, the, the beauty of a, a GTL is that it's also connecting up with the agriculture industry because now we will create through this one of the largest air separation units, and create nitrogen. Now, one of the technologies uses nitrogen to actually make fertilizer, you know, ammonia and fertilizer. So why would we not do that? So mm. to answer your question, there is a bigger picture of looking at the area for jobs in the first instance of just the plant. But the way we approach it is holistic top-down, where we say, but there is you know, a, a whole number of projects that could actually be facilitated to happen here. 
So now you create job opportunities for people in agriculture industry, in the technology industry, IT. Some of the application of our products will be cooling fluid for the, you know, the computer banks. So now the, 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 the integration that you create here is not just the hundred jobs of operational people that we will have during operation. It's actually going to be multiplied because now you've got indirect jobs. You've also got induced jobs. The lady that is doing the, you know, the, the sandwiches for the cafeteria, she's going to bring the bus. The local county is already indicated to us and said, why don't we actually create a, a kitchen, you know, down at the site where the food trucks can come in. So now there is a multiplier effect that you're going to see. Then in construction, we also need to apply risk mitigation and how we do this because we know there's not enough workers in North Dakota to do everything. We normally would, you know, require about 1,600 construction workers to do this. And we will follow a modularization approach because that will pre provide CapEx certainty to some extent. But it would also give us the opportunity to put this together in a fashion that is under quality control and will not stress the local infrastructure beyond its capacity of enduring growth. So that's the approach and the, and the answer to the type of job creation that we'll create. And it's going to be a full spectrum from engineering, admin, finance, IT, different project people, construction people, modularizing, but also then the support staff, even, you know, flying drones, understanding what it looks like. So it's a, it's a wide spectrum of job creation that will take place. When, when you've had the opportunity and or your team in some of the local settings or meetings, planning and zoning, for that matter, what, what are some of the most heartfelt concerns that some of the local folks feel and express to you about this opportunity and project? Michael, it's, it's a difficult question to answer because people are subjective to their own environment and their, their own understanding. Yes, people would say, I know it's important for us. I know it's important for me. I know it's important for my children, but I don't want the facility next to me. That is something that I can absolutely understand and, you know, can, can, that can resonate with me and how you do that. The way we wanted to do this and, you know, the way we planning and executing it is also to make sure that all of the concerns about regular compliance, whether the air permits and other activities will be addressed in a fashion that makes sense. But there's not always just the bad side of it, Mike. There's also the opportunity side in that. Because as we're doing the development, when you meet up with people and say, you know what, I don't want to just come in as an entity to do, you know, I'm going to sponsor your baseball caps of your, your team. I actually want to see how the community will be, you know, improved that it's healthy. Healthy in sense of, you know, job creation, stability, 
but also how we think about people. What are some of the challenges that they're facing today, whether it's mental challenges or other challenges? How do we get involved? And not that we will provide the full answer of everything, but how can we assist and provide direction or support the local community in doing this different and bring some of the expertise that we've experienced globally so that we can make a difference in the local community? Hmm. Thank you for that answer. Nico, I, I grew up in the valley over in the Fargo area and been around long enough where I remember when a company by the name of American Crystal Sugar uh, would announce the uh, plans to build a new sugar beet manufacturing facility where they take the beet and they process that, clean it, uh, cut it up, uh, use a fair amount of energy to do that. And then there's a number of byproducts from dog food to sugar. And I remember the, the heartfelt concerns people would express. And I've seen now some almost 60 years later how that company has significantly positively uh, impacted the, the whole valley almost, has introduced incredibly important technological changes and advances that they would be presented and also continually address concerns that uh, people would ha have. And then I watched how development would take place uh, pretty much around those facilities because that's kind of what happens. I share that because you opened up our conversation talking about the future and how important that is to North Dakota where another opportunity is now pre presented to us because we have three industries that we really depend on, agriculture and natural resources that are heavily dependent on the ebbs and flows of economy and, and, and all of that, very commoditized, and you have to be very sensitive to that, and then tourism. We're here, as you so eloquently shared, is that the next future opportunity for North Dakota to use, again, those resources that are there to put us in position to be part of the sustainable, cleaner fuel future, the cleaner petrochemical industries as well, and all the things that that makes available to us. And it's really the art of the long view. Hard for us sometimes to look at that when we're sometimes removed, but that's really what it is. And I, I just find it very, very exciting. And I think that um, the, the, this, 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 I think, first of its kind in North America, I think it was very significant for North Dakota. So thanks. The, uh, that's important for us. You know, Mike, and thank you for that. And it, it comes back to, you know, again, you know, that, uh, strategic view, your your long view of what what do you face, what do you need to change, and what do you need to adapt to, then to be intentional about what you're going to do about it, and not just let it flow, and then the ability to deliver on that. If I look at the intentionality, you know, moving that forward, that requires a lot of courage and leadership, 
really to say, you know what, this is what I want to do. This is how I'm looking at this. And this is the way I'm actually going to address this. And you've, you've touched on all the different components. We know the world is changing around us. So we can go and try to change the world, you know, use the term boiling the ocean. We can try to boil the ocean, but it's not going to happen. So how do we adapt and move around so that we can be in the best position that we can be? Look at the situations and adapt. That's why it's important for me to look at an an adaptive organization and learning organization design of how do we look at this from different perspectives, monitor what is going on around us, and then adapt and say, you know what, I've got the best plan of how I'm going to move this forward. Because if we don't do that, you're going to die. The, the reality is of the mm. quickest way to actually fall behind is to stay the same. So we need to continuously understand, even in that change that we embrace, what are the characteristics of the components that are happening around us? Which ones do we subscribe and support you know, through our value system? And what are we going to de- you know, do about that? And that means to look at you know, intentional strategies to implement this and then move forward with that. You know, the third leg or third stool of, uh, third leg of your stool, the stewardship, I think that probably resonates pretty well with folks in North Dakota because when you really started as an agrarian state, if you're not being a good steward of the land, you're not going to be around very long and you're not going to be able to produce for, your family, your community, and beyond. And uh, I, I share that with you. I appreciate very much the importance to you and your team and the future and what stewardship means to us. Thank you for that, Nico. Yeah, that's. Uh, I, I'm thinking nowadays a lot about that. I am, um, you know, getting together with a lot of friends in, um, you know, next year. And part of this is for me to realize the importance of what we do, how we do it, and how do we value the people around us, whether it's friends, whether it's family, and then be together on this journey of life in a way that is honorable. And if I can do that, then I think a lot of things will flow together and it will happen. It doesn't mean that we're not making mistakes. None of us is above making mistakes. But once you've got the mistakes, you know, ownership, leadership, and stewardship again, acknowledge we've made a mistake, own it. How are we going to move that forward and come up with a plan of how do we adapt to that? And then in doing so, be a good steward of what we need to deliver. Hmm. Nico, if you had a magic wand, you could wave over the heads of some of those wonderful folks in the Trenton area that have some heartfelt concerns about the, the project. But what's the one thing you'd want them to know about how you feel about their concerns? Mike, that is a, a deep question. Because deep down, I want to be able to address all the concerns that they have, whether it's sound, whether it's 
the environmental footprint, whether it's any of the other concerns about job creation and busyness on the roads and other things. I will commit to this, that we will do the best we can in mitigating the impact in the way that we will execute this and we will participate in reaching out and working with the folks on how to come up with a joint solution of what we do. It doesn't mean that we will be able to answer all the questions in the way they want it to be answered and addressed, but that we will do the best we can with our own constraints of what we can and cannot deliver in doing so, so that they would know that they will be heard in putting the questions and the difficult things on the table and that we would address and look at that in a way that is feasible and practical and that it's not going to be just whisk under the carpet. We will address it in the best way we can. Nico, when I heard you use the words joint solution, that screamed to me leadership, uh, ownership, stewardship, and love. You, know, you, you got to love people when you're going to be caring enough to say this will be a joint solution. So thank, thank you so much. That's a very special uh, and means a lot to folks. A couple other questions. When you were pursuing your educational interests in South Africa, did you ever think you were going to end up in North Dakota? <laughs> Never, Mike. Never, ever in my wildest dream, let alone land in North America, Canada, and now in North Dakota on what we're doing, and being involved with the things that we're doing. On the one side, as a young boy, you dream about life and you dream about what you want to do. But I can say God has been amazing. I have been surprised to levels that I've never anticipated in my whole life. And I can also say that the team of people that is around me and working with us is amazing. And you, you're working with a team, and I'm including in the team the why that I'm thinking about Williams County, you know, the, the different counties and other townships that are, you know, surrounding the area. I'm thinking even the state. That, you know, what pleasure and satisfaction is there to be able to come together and say, you know what, we all worked on this and we're actually coming up with a solution, not just a, a, you know, a blueprint for a, a global question and a global answer, but also for the state, for the community, and for our children. And I can get to do that. One of the engineers, I spoke with him this morning and he said, you know what, Nico, the fact that I get the opportunity to do this, is beyond its once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to do that. And I can many times sit back and also say, never thought that this will be where we are today. Very thankful for that, realizing that it's not in my hands. 
but it is uh, absolutely an honor and a privilege. Another magic wand question. For those individuals, and this is who's the wand's head being waved over, those individuals that are in leadership and policymaking roles in the state of North Dakota that have uh, influence over uh, projects that uh, are put before them for, for a variety of reasons. What's the one thing you want them to know about this type of a project, this gas to liquids project, and how it plays a role in the art of the long view or future of North Dakota? What's the one thing you want them to know? Mike, it is also, and I'm going to step back a little bit, is that it's not just about the project on itself, on its own. That the bigger energy industry needs a view and a strategy of how this is embracing the downstream development so that your petrochemical industry and other industries are also developed, that it's not just creating resources and selling that, but it's adding, adding value. In, in that sense, creating the robustness. So this is one of the building blocks and one of the first steps to do that. And with an approach that it's a holistic top-down approach that we follow and embracing this with a state, not in its isolation of just a project, that there is a joint development opportunity of creating a very different industry and a blueprint for many other projects that are not owned by us, but also to follow and passing a way of this is the way it should be done. And I think the legislators in reviewing this and seeing what we're busy doing is that they could see that there is not just a story. There is a intentionality of a plan and, you know, the different strategies with responsibility of how to deliver this step-by-step step in a very sophisticated and succinct way. And that's mm. what I want to portray to them, that there is more behind the words that has been said that they could realize today. And that their alignment on just a strategic level, you know, for the state, for the industry, and then for the project is being aligned to make sure that, you know, this is not just a solution that is a quick fix, but it will pave a way for others to follow. Hmm. Thank you, Nico. Thank you so much. That's probably my last question. I was doing some research on the Board of Canadian Energy Executive Association, the Canadian Energy Executive Association, which you're a board member of. And I read with great interest what happens every August. Uh, and by the way, for those that might not be familiar, that's somewhat analogous probably to the North Dakota Petroleum Association, but you know, nationwide in, in Canada. And I read with great interest that the chair in August fires after you celebrate the work of the year, they, they, they fire all of the board members 
And within four weeks, the incoming chair hires new board members. I thought that was just one of the coolest ideas I've ever heard of. I just thought that was pretty darn unique, Nico. Yes, uh, the CEO, uh, Canadian Energy Executive Association, as well as the, the different board members and, and, and what we're doing is that started a journey for me, understanding the, you know what a strategic framework should look like, why we should be doing something like this. But the intentionality of you know what the, this this board is doing is how to improve the energy industry and then bring people that in a normal sense would have been competitors working together for a common goal. And the beauty of this is we're doing it in bands. It's one of the most iconic, beautiful places in the world. And in that environment, not just to 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 do this and talk about business and the strategies and bringing in, whether it's indigenous groups, whether it's youth, whether it's new technologies, bringing, you know, thought leaders in the world about how do we need to think about it differently, but also to play golf and building relationships of, you know, the different groups. This coming August is the 71st, so it's been running for 71 years. Uh, apart from the two years that the seventh years did in COVID. But that is a significant legacy and what has been created to move things forward. And yes, every year the people are fired and they get their job um, you know, allocation for the new board members. And it's not always the same board members so that you've got a renewed growth and thinking, participating, I've been fortunate to be part of it for the last three, four years. But it is immensely powerful to see how the industry are also coming together in joining hands, tackling a problem with the same ownership, leadership, and stewardship. What are we going to do next? Nico, thank you so much for taking time from your busy schedule to join me. And, and when I reached out to you, I said this is about the future of energy and, of course, North Dakota's role in it. And I think today you did a beautiful, masterful job of painting the picture of why what you're doing is so important, North Dakota's role in that uh, effort and the messaging and how we can all participate. And I'll play a role in, in how we'll, we'll benefit from that. Thank you also for making the decision, you and your team members, to look at North Dakota and take that risk uh, to come here because every, you know, every project uh, has risk involved. Appreciate you so much and looking forward to how this all rolls out. And this is an exciting time for you, your company, North Dakota, and the future of energy. It really is. Thank you so much, Nico. Mike, I want to say thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to share some of my views, my heart, what is important to me and us. And I think, you know, just this opportunity to communicate and share brings a lot of benefit, even for some people understanding one little bit of what we're doing, that we, we're actually stepping up. We take ownership. Mm. 
we show the leadership and the stewardship required to move this forward. Thank you, Mike. God bless you, Nico. Thank you. Thanks, Mike.